Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm super excited to dive into this one today with Dr. Jake Sullivan. Jake can be found on Instagram and Twitter at the Baseball DPT. But ironically, today we're talking about softball. So we're looking at the differences between baseball and softball, and we're looking at what you might be treating a softball player for and what kind of things you should be considering on your exam, in addition to various treatment recommendations, return to sport progression, and so many other considerations. So we really jam packed a lot of information into about an hour in this one, but I know you're going to love it. So enjoy the show. Jake, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today, man. Oh, yeah. Very, very happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Excited to dig into softball a little bit. Yeah. And I know that's a little bit ironic because your Instagram handle is the baseball DPT. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I I think that softball has a lot of similarities as baseball. But as we're going to discuss today, there's a few key differences that mean you can't just treat both the same. Uh, But, you know, for people who might not be familiar with you or maybe they aren't familiar with the work you're doing down there in Kentucky, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and what you've done for baseball and softball? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a I graduated from Western Kentucky University uh, four years ago, back in 2019. I've been uh, working orthopedic outpatient ever since. Uh, I'm certified with SFMA, FMS. Uh, That's kind of what I use most of the time treating in the clinic, especially with my athletes. And then I've kind of branched off on the on-base U, um, which they are currently doing baseball hitting and pitching certifications. And then they just branched out to the softball pitching certification too, uh, which kind of got sparked my interest in looking at the difference between baseball and softball. So that's kind of where uh, that's come from. Um, So I work in the clinic part-time throughout the week. And then when I'm not in the clinic, I'm actually working over in a baseball softball training academy here in Owensboro, where they have hitting instructors for both baseball and softball. They have pitching instructors for softball and baseball, and then they have a catching instructor that kind of hits them both. So I'm kind of working hand in hand with a lot of the instructors. And it's really opened my eyes as far as the difference between those two sports and how to treat them all uh, very differently. And then every year I go down to the uh, MLB Combine, which this year it's in Phoenix here in a couple of weeks and do a lot of the help out with a lot of the screening for strength and conditioning, movement assessments, and all that for all the prospects out there. Yeah, that's awesome. And what I really like is you kind of you get to wear two hats at the same time, right? You get to wear the PT hat, where you look at the movement, the mechanics, all that sort of thing. But you also get to wear the hat of seeing things through the eyes of a pitching coach or a hitting coach, and you kind of split your time between the two uh, settings. And I think that's something that is extremely difficult to find. I can find a pitching coach or a hitting coach easy. I can find a PT easy. How often is it you find someone that kind of wears both and spends time in both settings, you know? Um, So I think that's really awesome. And I know your work with uh, the MLB has also been very impactful as well there. Uh, So starting off with softball here, you know, kind of like we mentioned, there's some similarities between baseball and softball. There's some differences. Uh, what would you say the big similarities you see from both a coaching standpoint and a uh, PT standpoint are? You know, is it more in the hitting side of things or the fielding or where do you see kind of the, your main common trends between the two sports? Yeah, the hitting is definitely the biggest similarity between the two. Um, I wouldn't say, especially with the hitting instructors there, that we preach any differently with the hitting between baseball and softball. So when you get to that part, pretty much the coaching there tends to be the same. And I think that's the biggest similarity is looking at the rotational athlete 
uh, part of the two. They're both rotational athletes, but I think where you really start to get the difference between the two is when you look at just the throwing motion in general, where I guess the way you could look at it is the fielders, everybody playing in the field in softball would be kind of considered an overhead athlete. I don't know if I necessarily consider the pitcher themselves an overhead athlete because they aren't throwing overhead like you see with football, like you see with baseball, like you see with pitchers and all that. I mean, that's really the big difference is when you start looking at the pitching with softball. That's um, where they don't no longer have that same feel of the baseball player. But like you said, from from the hitting perspective, definitely a lot of similarities between the two. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And kind of like you mentioned there, the pitching is certainly kind of jumping out as like the key hallmark difference. Um, would you say that difference holds up to, you know, I don't see it as often anymore, but growing up watching the MLB, it seemed like there's a few pitchers that would throw kind of submarine or sidearm style. Would you say that's more comparable to the softball throwing motion or is that softball windmill just so unique that nothing really competes with it? Yeah, I'd say it's a lot more unique that it's, it's tough to compete. I mean, that was the one thing I think kind of started with the whole submarine stuff back then is they see these softball pitchers like, well, softball pitchers can throw 100 pitches one night and turn around and throw 100 pitches the next night and never have injuries. Well, they do have injuries, just not as many injuries. Um, so why can't we turn that into baseball? So I started some of the submarine stuff. You still see them occasionally. It is less torque on the elbow, kind of the motion they're throwing with. Um, but it's still, still a lot different because with the submarine pitches, you're still – really just changing the position of your trunk rather than staying upright and throwing overhead. Um, but from that standpoint, you're still putting a little bit more torque on the arm than the softball pitchers. So where softball pitchers, you're staying a lot more upright. It's a lot less, uh, I guess, rotation of the shoulder out in that like 90-90 position and a lot more just kind of straight through flexion and extension motion, which is a little bit more natural for the body, I'd have to say. Yeah, yeah, certainly. You know, just straight forward, straight back. Um almost like um like a soft like a baseball equivalent of like a bowling throw or something like that um you know and the other piece I think that really comes into play here as well is we talked about it previously the baseball that a five or six year old starts to learn to play with is the same as the baseball that's used in the MLB same weight same size everything and you mentioned before that the softball like the development of the sport follows like a progression model where you know, the softball used in like professional uh, games or college games is not the same as the softball used in like little league. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So baseball, that's, that's the unique thing is you have a, you have a five-year-old learn to play baseball is throwing the same baseball that a 35 year old seasoned veteran is using up in the major leagues. And I, I truly think that's the only sport that follows that where softball is kind of like football, where you're changing the size of the softball throughout it um different weights different sizes, and all that kind of stuff and there's a little bit more natural development there yeah yeah for sure now how much of the differences between the two sports would you say can be credited to gender alone and what I mean by that is you know plain and simple there's some unique mechanical differences and just development differences between male athletes and female athletes do you feel that anything that we've discussed thus far or, you know, we're going to get into so many different specifics on injuries and that sort of thing here later. Do you think any of that comes back to just the male versus female difference or not necessarily? I would say just the treatment perspective is definitely where you see the difference between uh, male and females. Um, as far as, I mean, growing up, you see a lot of females trying to play baseball like growing up and stuff like that. So I, I don't think the uh, gender component has a lot to do with why baseball and softball players move differently, but definitely when it comes to the treatment perspective and how you're treating the two, there's a lot of anatomical differences that you got to be aware of 
um, when assessing, evaluating, and treating the two. And I think that's where the big difference comes in. So on that note, then, from a eval standpoint, say a softball player comes into your clinic for an eval, um, based on what you've seen thus far, what are they most likely coming for? Is it more shoulders or is it more of like a wrist? What kind of injuries do you typically see from softball players? Yeah, the two that I probably see the most is low back pain and shoulder pain, um, which is and probably a little bit of biceps and nice. I say that's a pretty common one I see. I think that's a little bit more common between just anybody who throws. Um, and I'd say the biceps people are more of the fielders rather than the pitchers. But as far as the pitchers with softball, it definitely tends to be more low back pain and more shoulders I'm working with. It's so funny you mentioned that because I have someone right now that I'm treating a softball player with shoulder pain and lower back pain. <laughs> we we got the combo. Um, so it's so funny you kind of bring those up as kind of like the hallmark too, um, for lack of a better way to put it there. Um, so typically with the shoulder and the lower back, I'm assuming you're kind of looking at a little bit of everything from just gross movement. You mentioned your FMS, SFMA guy. Um, all the way down to like individual segmental movement or, you know, just overall shoulder stability as well, correct? Absolutely. What other exam considerations are you, um, you know, looking at on day one for a softball player who's coming in with shoulder pain or one that's coming in with lower back pain? Yeah, so once I do the SFMA and I get kind of get all their breakouts and look at the local exam, um, the biggest things I'm concerned with is I'm always going to want to look at grip strength with them um throughout different positions too so look at grip strength kind of right at their side look at grip strength overhead look at grip strength in 90 90 position look at grip strength straight down to the side kind of behind them um, because i just want to see in different positions of the arm where their body is comfortable and where it's not comfortable and you, you'll see that pretty quickly looking at grip strength like if i have a pitcher come in she has 50 pounds of force at the side but then all of a sudden you go overhead and it drops down to 30 and then you drop it down to the side it drops down to 30 uh, that's kind of showing me like their body is capable of producing a lot more force than what they can do in those other positions. And if they don't have that grip strength in those positions that's necessary for pitching motion, well, then all of a sudden, every time they go to pitch, they don't have the stability of their shoulder like them to have when they're throwing a pitch. So grip strength is definitely huge and making sure you get that grip strength in different positions. Um Outside of that, I like looking at some of the components of FMS with them with like the trunk stability push-up, kind of seeing how well they can control their anterior core to prevent that extension in their low back. Uh, rotary stability, how well that they can control that rotation and not just let their body go side to side when they go down to one side or one, one arm and one leg. Um, so that component of FMS is really big with them also. Um, I like looking at squat assessment with the female athletes just because typically they are a lot more mobile. So I like seeing what happens with their knees and with their hips when they squat, um, all those different kinds of things. Again, the shoulder range of motion, you're going to pick up a lot of that with, FM, or with the SFMA breakouts. Um, neck mobility is always huge with them because you don't want anything with the shoulder to be stolen from the neck, having to turn the opposite way to look at home plate. Um, but those are, those are the big things I'm definitely looking at day one. And then I, the benefit I have of working at ISO um, with the softball pitching coaches, she's really the main softball pitching coach here in Owensboro, Kentucky. It's not the biggest town. And so most of the softball pitchers that I get are already working with her. So I usually end up picking her brain at some point to know like, Hey, from a pitching mechanic perspective, what is it that this pitcher struggles with? Is there anything that you're working with her on that she's struggling with that might be leading to some of this pain she's getting? 
Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. That was a point we hammered uh, repeatedly with Eric Degatti recently on the podcast is ultimately for best outcomes, you kind of need to put everyone together and sit everyone down and say, hey, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? What are you seeing? Because, um, you know, unfortunately, in modern physical therapy environment, unless you're in a cash-based clinic where you can get 90 minutes or two hours with someone one-on-one, you're probably not going to be able to assess every single thing from throwing mechanics to all of these other things. And, you know, at least for myself, I'm not necessarily sure that you would want me breaking down, you know, softball throwing mechanics, because believe it or not, I've never played softball myself. Um, And I certainly, (laughs) certainly won't know as much about it as someone who studies the sport and coaches the sport and kind of knows like, you know, more about throwing mechanics of the pitching, especially, Um, you know, I think it was interesting that you brought up the point of the grip strength, especially in different positions there. It's usually not one that I hear about or think about often, but it certainly makes sense, right? You know, if we just sit here, we even just white knuckle fist, we can feel tension build all the way up into our biceps. Sure. That muscle doesn't, cross our wrist joint or into any of our fingers but for some reason if i squeeze my fist really hard i can feel tension build all the way up there um i think uh, i think the principle was called irradiation or something like that essentially when you tense a certain group of muscles other muscles kind of get some of that tension as like a spillover effect so Mm -hmm. if we're really stable at the shoulder our elbow is probably going to be stable if we're really stable at the wrist and hand our elbow is probably going to be stable um, so, you know, we, we, you mentioned earlier about baseball and elbow injuries. Um, and I'd imagine that if we just have good stability distally and good stability, uh, proximally, the thing in the middle is probably going to move. Okay. As a result. Um, mm-hmm. so I like how you brought that up and I like how you brought up, you know, the importance of looking at different positions because unfortunately sitting at a chair with elbow bent to 90 degrees, is probably not going to be a position they spend much time in in a sport like softball. Correct. So, usually, usually they're really comfortable in that position. So I always do that one first and then I'll show them too and be like, Hey, look, there you got 50, 60 pounds, whatever you say. But then when they go to those other positions and it goes down, I tell them, you know, you've already shown me you're capable of producing more force than what you just did at your side or overhead. Right. The only difference is something about that position. Your brain isn't allowing you to produce more force because something from that brain to that hand is telling you to hold up and not squeeze anything harder because if you do something's going to go wrong yeah yeah and we certainly need to find a way to kind of rewire that you know as you were talking there too we've kind of hit kind of our general exam considerations but uh you mentioned uh rotation a little bit ago how often do you look at like disassociation of rotation between the shoulder and the hip or at the lumbo-pelvic hip complex? And how important would you say something like that is to a softball pitcher? You know, we've talked about it in the past in relation to a swing, but how about that pitching motion? Because it's, uh, again, it's pretty unique what they're doing to uh, throw a softball here. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely just as important looking at like that hip-shoulder separation as you would with any um, rotational athlete with hitting uh, same thing as you look at with a baseball pitcher. You really just want to make sure that they have the ability to open up those hips towards the plate without letting that upper body and everything fly open too. Because if if you open those hips up and the trunk flies up towards the plate, now all of a sudden you're putting that shoulder in a really compromised position. And, a, and then you have to do a pitching motion in a compromised position, which isn't going to be great on the shoulder. And that's typically the ones that 
come to me with the shoulder pain. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then all of these things, as we've been talking, all kind of feed into the lower back as well, right? Like if you're not able to disassociate movement at the um, lumbopelvic hip complex or plain and simple, if you've just got a ton of mobility there and no strength and stability, then odds are you're going to start to run into issues relating to that instability. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's where the SF may break out to do that job really well. Um, when you're looking at like the multi-segmental rotation breakout, which is probably the one that I look at the most with any of these rotational athletes, we're seeing how well that they can rotate just their T-spine in like a lumbar lock position. We're having them seated where you kind of take the hips out of it and see how well that they can rotate through the pelvis and through their upper body without letting the hips move. Um, the other thing I'm always really curious of when I'm looking at the rotation is how much do they use their scapulas versus how much do they actually rotate their T-spine. Uh, that's one thing that actually the other day I was right when I got done working with one of my athletes, she had a hitting lesson right after someone watched her hitting lesson too. And she's one that really struggles with T-spine rotation, but has a lot of scapula mobility. It's kind of has created that, uh, breakdown of should have a stable scapula with rotation in the T-spine. She doesn't have the mobility. She's going to sacrifice the stability somewhere else with her, it's her scapulas and go figure she's coming with shoulder pain with pitching, but she goes out for the, uh, hitting hitting instruction and the hitting coach is sitting there trying to work with her on getting her shoulders back rotating that's fine and he asked me he said you know why why is she not being able to get her shoulders back like is there something going on there I'm like well she can't get her shoulders back like she can't rotate there so and I think that's the benefit of having the PT coaching relationship there in the cages is you don't want the coaches to sit there and get frustrated with somebody telling them to do something they physically can't do and so that's where it's really nice to have that communication between the two towards, hey, maybe you need to go work with the PT a little bit on this so then we don't have to continue to try something you can't do and have him work on that, get that, get your body able to do that and then come back out for the instruction and it's going to go a lot smoother. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, and as you mentioned there as well, it's kind of interesting when different people are picking up on the same issue, right? Um, it, it's interesting to me because there's, a lot of individuals out there who will say, well, you know, I'm the PT, so I'm, I know everything, or, you know, I've got the doctorate degree or whatever that way. And it's like, you know, that, 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 you know, keep thinking that way if you want to, that's <laughs> not going to lead you to any good spot there. Um, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in the Dunning-Kruger effect myself, where the more you think, you know, the more you realize you don't know, or the, the more you go out there and actually use things, the more you realize, wow, I actually know nothing. Um, mm -hmm. I love that I'm dropping that mid episode right now. Um, <laughs> saying like, oh yeah, I don't actually, yeah, that, that's a great plug here. Um, but you know, plain and simple, not one person has all the answer to, you know, working with a baseball player, softball player, or any athlete for that matter. And ultimately the more collaborative you can get on, you know, what you're seeing from a pitching coach, a hitting coach, all of that sort of thing. Um, you know, the more collaborative you can get, the better the outcome is going to be because nothing gets missed in the rundown. You know, even though your eval uh, process, as you mentioned, there is pretty thorough. Um, there's still probably like one thing that could be improved on there. You know, we've always got one thing we can all improve on there. I've probably got more than one. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. So yeah. following the eval process here, we've kind of got to carry it over into our treatment approach. And that's an area where I see a lot of people struggle is they nail a diagnosis on eval. And then all of a sudden their treatment program looks the same as everyone else's. And I, I always shake my head at it a little bit, but you know, from a shoulder stability standpoint 
or even from a lower back stability standpoint, what kind of things are you trying to train and re-educate and even load, even load, I'll say, uh, through your treatment approaches with softball athletes? And, um, you know, I guess I'll say too, does that change at all if someone comes to you in season versus out of season? Uh, yeah, it definitely changes. Um, and it even depends on where they're at in the season. Like if I, if I have somebody coming in first week of the season, they have shoulder pain. I don't feel nearly as bad sitting there and kind of shutting them down saying, okay, well, hey, you're going to get a lot better real quick. If we're able to take the stressor away and not pitch for two or three weeks, get you under control and then get you back out there versus they come to me with one week left in their season and their biggest game of the season for the whole team is tomorrow night. Probably not going to tell that girl not to pitch tomorrow night. We're just going to do everything we can to basically put as many band-aids on her body as we can to help her get through that night with as little pain as possible and um, really not do anything that's going to harm her body that night. Um, so in season, it definitely changes where we're at in the season. And then off season, same thing. Like I, we can definitely shut it down in the off season, take away the pitching if that's what's causing it, really dive deep into what things are causing it during the pitching motion and kind of treat those. Um, usually where I start with the treatment is always wanted to see what they're doing before the pain comes on. So if the pain is with pitching, I always really want to know what they're doing warm-up wise before they go out and throw. Cause that's, I found that getting a good warm-up, if that's something that they aren't doing, usually gets rid of a lot of the pain more so than anything we're doing in the clinic. Really? Um, absolutely. Cause I, th- I think a lot of it comes down to what we were talking about earlier with the anatomical differences females tend to be a little bit more hypermobile than males. Um, but what you see is they kind of treat everybody like an overhead athlete. So let's go out there. Okay. Let's do some arm circles. Let's pull your arm across your body. So you're taking this really hypermobile shoulder and you're making it even more mobile right before you go do something that's going to make it even more mobile with pitching. Um, so getting a good warm up is, is really, really important to them. And that's something I've done with a lot of the local coaches here is helping educate them on, you know, what kind of things should these girls be doing before they go out there and throw, before they go out there and pitch. And so I think establishing a good warm-up is, is definitely kind of where I start with them and making sure that they feel comfortable with that um, and that they get into a good routine before throwing. Yeah, that's interesting. So would you say your warm-up is more focused on like closed chain stability type movements, like a crawling variation or something like that? Or Yeah, definitely. So I definitely do a little bit less just static hold stretches and focus a lot more on stabilization with them. So I'm going to do a lot more weight-bearing stuff. I like doing stuff like downward dogs, going downward dog with like an opposite foot toe touch or something like that. So you're still getting some of that like posterior chain stretching because that's still something they do need before going out there running and all that. But you're getting, when you go into the downward dog, now you're getting some stability in an overhead position. Um, I like doing some stuff with like crab walks and stuff like that, because now you're getting into like a shoulder extended position and getting some stability there too, and kind of exposing your body to those different ranges of motion that you're about to have to go through when you go through a pitch and getting more stability in that position rather than just stretching in that position. Um, Going back to like the grip strength, I still like doing some arm circles and stuff like that where I'll usually have them just grab on softball and just squeeze the softball kind of as hard as they can as they go through their arm circle progression. Again, to kind of get that grip strength going in every position that the shoulder is going to be going through in that motion just to get more comfortable in those positions. Yeah, and you you also hit on a key point there that I know we've talked about in the past as well is you said, you know, it's already a hypermobile joint. It's going to be more hypermobile after they pitch. 
So why are we going to add to that issue uh, by stretching it statically for a long time? Mm -hmm. You mentioned before, uh, you might have even had a post on it. I don't remember um, that, you know, in softball, you see increased range of motion after pitching. Yeah. With baseball, you see decreased range of motion after pitching. Mm -hmm. um, but in both, strength goes down after pitching. Um, I, I forget what your number was right off. Was it like 12% or 15% yeah. or something? Um, yeah. So, you know, we stop and think about it. And we're looking at a decrease in strength of our stabilizing musculature after pitching. And we're looking at a joint that's already hypermobile. And it's going to be more hypermobile after we finish pitching. Um, and oh, by the way, this this girl's going to have to pitch tomorrow or <laughs> again in two days. Um, so, so I certainly see where just stretching it is just going to add fuel to the fire, for lack of a better way to put it, because we keep decreasing strength and increasing range of motion. And the more long term that becomes, I would imagine the worse the issue uh, is to try and treat and, you know, reverse for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was, I had a softball pitch that I was working with the other day and like going back to this warm up. Um, that was one thing that we spent the whole session just getting her a good warm up based off of what we found with her evaluation. And when she came to me um, without doing any warm up, any exercise or stuff, we looked at her range of motion. She had limited shoulder flexion and limited shoulder extension actively, but then we take it through passively. And she had well beyond what I'd say was normal flexion, well beyond what I would say is normal extension. And so I kind of showed her like, you know, you have this motion that you need available to go through a pitching motion. You just don't have control of it. So it's kind of more that stability motor control component. So then I asked her, I said, you know, what, what do you do before you go out there and pitch? And she's like, well, I mean, I just do whatever the team does. And there was nothing she was doing that addressed any sort of shoulder flexion, any sort of shoulder extension. Um, and so just kind of as like an eye-opening thing for her, I just had her do five minutes of exercises using some Indian clubs, kind of rotating, going through some flexion extension with her shoulder, some rotation with her shoulder. And then we just retested and her active flexion, active extension, both were completely lined up active and passive. So she had that full active flexion, full active extension. And that's where I kind of showed her, look, look, we just did five minutes of something real quick and all your shoulder motion was there. If you can just get that right before you go throw. Now you have control of your full motion before you pitch and you're no longer having to steal that stability from somewhere else to try to produce that motion. Um, and I, I'd seen her once this week now. Well, yeah, once this week and she said she did the warm up and the pain was a lot less that day pitching. So it's just crazy how much this a good warm up can go, um, especially when it's individualized to meet that specific athlete's needs. Yeah, hundred percent. And as you mentioned, that takes no more than just a few minutes. And that alone significantly reduced her pain and it allowed her to continue playing her sport, um, mm -hmm. which I think is the key part there as well is, you know, you mentioned before, sometimes we'll park the bus on people and pull them out for a couple of weeks. But ideally, we live in a world where that's not even on the table and we can just improve their situation based on, you know, modifying things like their warm up routine. And I think that's a key point as well, because that's something that you know, how often do we overlook that as providers? You know, we ask them what they do. Oh, there's a softball player. Oh, they play on the school team and the travel team. Okay, good enough. Like, <laughs> we, we never even dive into, you know, the the whole, what does your warm-up look like? Or, hey, yeah. what do you do after the game? Are you just, yeah. you know, throw ice on the arm and call it a day? Or are you going to do a little bit of recovery work? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll even take, I'll, I'll make a bold statement. 
I'll take someone who says I massage gun the shoulder over I just ice it and then move on any day. For um, sure. And I know I know that gets a little controversial on the whole massage gun thing, but I I'll take it. Um taking it a step further here, um, you know, you mentioned about the um the the role that um the warm-up plays for the shoulder. What do you do for the lower back? Is there any way that you kind of hit or address the core stability as like part of your warm up? And if you are, then how are you kind of hammering that specific to the female athlete population? Because I know you and I have talked in the past about some stuff relating to, you know, prolonged ISO holds like, a, you know, five plus minute plank and uh, considerations for female athletes. So how do you kind of go about structuring a core and lower back focused warm up? Yeah, so I definitely do everything I can um, to try to basically address the pelvic floor without addressing the pelvic floor. Um, there, there's a lot of people that are much more skilled in addressing the pelvic floor and really diving into a full assessment there. But it's definitely something, like you said, that you got to be leery of. You got to make that a consideration when you're programming for these athletes. Um, I'd like doing a lot of half kneel stuff, a lot of like lunge position stuff where we're getting that hip um, opening and like hip dissociation there, one hip flex, one hip extended. So we're not just hammering the hip flexors or not just cranking the hip extension where they're actually extending their low back and not actually getting the hip extension. Um, so I'll do a lot of that, like lunges with rotations to kind of get the T-spine rotating on top of the pelvis. Um, like I said, with the crab walks, I like those just as much for the hips and the, and the core as I do for getting that shoulder extension, because now you're going into some hip extension there you got to train them to make sure they're not just extending their back and they actually feel their stomach kind of kicked on there to resist that. Um, but I'm going much more some anti-rotation, anti-extension based exercises with their warm up and with their recovery um, to kind of keep that anterior core activation without putting too much strain on the low back there. Yeah. Do you find most coaches are open to these sort of things and are able to find ways to work these into their warm ups for, you know, maybe the athlete you're working with, but maybe even as just part of a whole team thing where they say, hey, look, you know, we could all use a little extra shoulder stability or we could all use a little extra, you know, lumbar stability and we're going to throw these into the warm up. Do you find most people are receptive to that or not necessarily? To an extent, it kind, it kind of you have to get in with the coach as well. Um, I have a coach here that I work really well with their program. It's one of the one of the better um programs here in the actually in the state of Kentucky they've pretty much consistently been in the state final four for the past four or five years now um, and I know their coach really well and every fall I go out there and we do a just complete movement screen on their program from eighth grade all the way to seniors so we had I think 55 girls in it last year and I'm looking at a lot of the movements that I think correlate well to softball whether it be your neck rotation shoulder mobility thoracic spine mobility hip mobility rotary spilly trunk push the list goes on and on the things that we look at and basically i put in a big spreadsheet and wherever we see just a big basically like sea of red where everybody struggled with this or everybody did fine here but they struggled with this that's where i kind of put a good warm-up together for them to start working on during the off season to say hey most of your girls need work here so let's get all this kind of stuff cleared up um, it also helps with identifying red flags with some other athletes like uh, before the season rolls around, hey, this girl is really limited here, here. She had her pain, like low back pain with a squat. So that'd be, this would be the perfect time to get that um, kind of cleaned up before the season begins. But I go, to, I go into those trying to figure out, like talking to coaches, say, hey, 
here's what I can do for you rather than here's what you can do for me. And if it's ways that ultimately are going to make their team better, it's going to help the coach out because it's going to make the coach look better. So they are very open to that. Um, as long as you can pitch it in a way that they see how it's going to help them out just as much. Yeah, I love that. And um, I, I'm all about the focus on prevention or prehabilitation, we'll call it, you know, address things when it's just kind of kindling instead of when it's blazing hot, because, you know, you get some of these injuries that come in that are just, for lack of a better way to put it, they're hot, you know, it's eight, nine, 10 out of 10 pain, and you really just got to let it cool off a little bit before you get involved. Um, but, you know, with that said, it, it can be a little tough because we can't necessarily guarantee results. You know, we mm -hmm. can't sit there and say, hey, just because we put in these three weeks of work doesn't mean it's not going to still flare up in the season. Absolutely. It, and I, I guess my next point is, you know, we as providers shouldn't be afraid of that failure. And I yeah. wouldn't even call it a failure. You know, if our goal is pain management alone, then we shouldn't be in a movement-based profession. We should go work for a pain management group and do nothing but modalities and needles all day long. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we have to address the movement factors and the ones that we hit, maybe they are associated with that person's pain. Maybe they're not, but regardless, they're a heck of a lot stronger and that's going to carry over into their performance. We, mm -hmm. we can go back to the pain if it flares up later. Um, but, you know, I'm certainly a huge fan of control the controllables. And if something does happen, it's better to look at it and say, look, we did everything we could than to say, well, we left stuff on the table. Yeah, I'm very upfront and educating these coaches beforehand. Like I will never tell somebody that I'm going to help your whole team not get injured. Um, one thing I like to tell them is I can't tell you which girls won't get hurt, but I can probably tell you which girls will get hurt. Uh, injuries are unavoidable. Everybody's going to get hurt at some point. But if you see these movements, it's like, man, this girl has no grip strength. She has a one on her trunk stability. She has pain with her rotary stability. Well, there's a good chance when she goes out there to do something that requires rotation, requires extension, she's going to get hurt. Um, however, you can still get that person with a three on their trunk stability, three with the rotary stability, go out there and there can still be some freak accidents that's going to cause an injury. So it's all about what you're pitching it to them. Because if you go in with the mindset of, hey, I'm going to help your whole team not get hurt, and then injuries arise, now the coach is like, well, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. You know, there's certain things you just can't avoid. Um, but one of the most avoidable things that I've seen is, you know, just the concept of load management in general is, you know, I found that tissue has a loading capacity if you exceed that too often and too much, uh, it starts to get really irritated. So how do you look at concepts like load management in a sport like softball here, Jake? Because there's not really like a pitch count or pitch limit. And, you know, for most of what I've seen, you know, you can go from one day, one game to the next to the next and still throw the same person, you know, hundreds of pitches a week, no issue. So how does how does load kind of play into that? Yeah, the load manager with softball gets a lot more tricky with baseball because, like you said, they you don't have your, oh, here's your Tuesday night starter, here's your Friday night starter, here's the bullpen guys that are going to throw during these games. With softball, it becomes a much more of a, here is your one starter, and here's the person that's going to throw if she ever is in pain or ever starts to get in trouble. You don't have nearly as much. Um, but I do think it is good to still um, keep an eye on how many they're throwing. I think the recommended pitch count like that they're saying now is, 
think it's no more than 140-ish pitches on back-to-back days. And then if they throw back-to-back days at 140, then no more than 100 on day three, which is just an insane amount of load when you're looking at, well, in baseball, somebody throws 140 pitches, they probably will, well, I don't know if anybody will ever throw 140 pitches in a baseball game. But even if you go to that day three where it's 100 pitches, well, now they're going to be shut down for four days. Um, So the load management part of it is definitely tough. And so I think with that, it becomes a lot more education on letting your body speak to you and letting letting your body let you know when it needs to rest. Um, it comes back to looking at those things like looking at grip strength with them throughout the season, looking at their FMS scores throughout the season, looking at their movement patterns throughout the season to at least make sure that you can see if their hip mobility starts to go down and their grip strength is starting to decrease quite a bit, then you know that it's time for them to take a little bit of rest and take a couple of days off before throwing again, just because you don't want them to go out there with a weaker shoulder and with less mobile hips and a less mobile spine, because that's just asking for injury at some point. Um, I think the, the much more important thing with load management is definitely look at the recovery. Like what are we doing at least after you throw those 140 pitches to make sure when you go out there the next day and throw 140 pitches again, your body is just as ready to handle that load as it was the day before. Um, which I know we spoke a little about a little bit about it earlier, but with softball pitchers, their their shoulder is more mobile when they're done pitching. Their hips are less mobile when they're done pitching, and their shoulder is less stable when they're done pitching. So if they're gonna expect to throw the night after, which I don't think is at all is an issue with that. Uh, if they're going to go out there and throw the next day, they need to make sure they do something that night to restore that hip mobility, to restore that shoulder mobility or restore the shoulder stability and kind of normalize that shoulder mobility again. Gotcha. So it's not necessarily a sin to crush a little bit of shoulder stabilization, whether it's open chain or closed chain, even after pitching. Um, and you know, on the hip mobility side, do you have a preference on, you know, some active mobility drills versus just like some static stretching to typical tight muscle groups or the research that I've, I've kind of looked at all kind of shows the decreased hip mobility after pitching. Again, I still kind of attribute that to probably some of the hypertonic with the hypertonicity with the pelvic floor with these female athletes. I think it's it's pretty common to see if you take a group of high school females, you take a group of college females and have them go do something like that where it's putting a lot of load on their body, something's going to kind of tighten up and a lot of time it becomes that pelvic floor with them. So I don't necessarily like just sitting there and stretching out the hips because I don't think that's really what their body needs to improve the mobility. I like working on just a lot more pelvic control with them, working on stuff in the half kneel where you're putting them in that split stance position where one hips flex one hips extended and just trying to break up that tone while you do something on top of it whether it be indian clubs whether it be chops or lifts or something where you're getting some spinal rotation and keeping that stable pelvis and usually that's what they need to kind of help turn down some of that tone in the hips to allow that um, i do like focusing kind of like we said with massage gun using a foam roller or something working on like the posterior hips showing them kind of where their hip flexors are at and showing them how they can kind of do like some self-massage of those hip flexors to kind of keep those loosened up. Cause that's typically one of the big players of the female is getting those hip flexors kind of relaxed. Yeah, for sure. And again, that's the kind of thing that it, it probably makes one or 2% of the difference, but I want that one or 2%, you know, there's um, the foam roll, the massage gun. There's a lot of these different things that are very much in the spotlight right now of like, well, you know, we shouldn't do them or that sort of thing. Um, but at the end of the day, I find that athletes feel a lot of value and benefit from them. And to me, yeah. regardless of what the research says, 
If someone comes to me and says, look, I know I do a lot better when this happens. I feel like I kind of have to integrate that in some capacity in what we do. Now, I'm not saying every PT session we're foam rolling for 10 minutes, but if they can foam roll on their own and they notice benefit from it, I'm not going to pump the brakes on that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and again, I, I just, I feel like a lot of people in this space are getting to a point where they want to argue over little, like, you know, sand things in a jar here, you know, tiny little things like should an athlete spend a minute foam rolling or not? Uh, when in reality, there's a lot bigger picture things here, kind of like we've talked about today. Can you evaluate an athlete that plays this sport and actually kind of understand what's going on? And then if you can do that, can you then follow it up into a treatment course that actually makes sense, whether that be in season or out of season? Because unfortunately, a lot of people aren't doing that and it becomes a big disservice to this athletic population. Absolutely. Yeah. You definitely got to pick the battles that you're going to take. And, you know, you tell them, oh, foam rolling something, it really isn't going to change much. Or, oh, icing isn't going to change much. Well, they're still going to go their travel softball tournament over the weekend. They're going to see half the girls out there icing their shoulders and their mind will, why is this guy telling me it doesn't happen, but then everybody does it? Um, I'd much rather uh, spend my time educating them on the need to do other things rather than telling them they don't need to do certain things that may or may not help. What I do know is that it's not going to do any harm. So at least let them continue that and then really emphasize on that. Like we said, warm up, emphasize that recovery. And I'd much rather uh, fight those battles than the others. Yeah. And again, if it keeps things pain-free, I will pick a, you know, a cool down, non-painful shoulder or lower back to work with any day of the week over the one that's painful, flared up, irritated, and you just become pain management for that person. Absolutely. Um, now, you we've talked at length about, you know, your role and, you know, the importance of overlapping you know, what you do in PT with how you work with pitching coaches and softball coaches and that sort of thing. Um, How does that play into your return to sport? So if you have an athlete, maybe they were out for a period of time, or maybe it's just those two to three weeks that you talked about earlier at the start of the season. How do you go about phasing them back into the sport? Do you go all at once or do you kind of tiptoe them back in? Uh, What's your typical progression for that look like? Yeah. So depending on what the injury is, if it's an upper body injury, um, I'm obviously going to want grip strength normalized before I roll them back out there to be throwing again. Um, I want to see good wide balance results, make sure there's no like asymmetry side to side with the upper body. I want to make sure their FMS and all that is clear. If it's a lower body injury, then I'm also going to tie in some sort of like power with some sort of hop testing, triple hop testing, something like that to make sure everything's good there. Once that's all good, then again, it becomes a lot of education with the coaches and a lot of communication with their coaches and the athletic trainers. Um, you're not going to go out. You don't have the time as the PT to go out there at every single practice and watch them as they practice. Like, okay, how'd that feel? How'd that feel? Are you good? Are you good? Um, so it's, you definitely want, when you're working with these athletes, um, get their coaches numbers from them, get their athletic trainers, establish those connections and then give them a call, communicate, be like, Hey, here's what we're working on in the clinic. Here's where they're at. They're still limited with this, or this is improving and give them like what your opinion is as far as what they should be doing. If it's a seven, they can go at 75%, they're running, sprinting, all that kind of stuff. Um, same thing with pitching, talk to them, be like, Hey, I'm cool with them starting to pitch, but I don't want them to go over really say 50 pitches tonight. Um, what I find a lot of times with that return to throwing is they can go out there and throw as much as they want 
right like when they're getting back from an injury it's not why they're pitching they feel it it's the next day that they feel it so, so you want them to kind of ease back into let's say 50, say 50 pitches tonight see how you feel tomorrow if everything feels tomorrow uh feels good and there's no injuries or anything like that then we can start talking about going up to 75 pitches up to 100 pitches something like that but that all comes back to communication with the coaches communications with the athletic trainer so that everybody's on the same page if you just tell your athlete hey um, go throw 50 pitches tonight and then meet me in the clinic next week and let me know how it feels. Chances are before they come back to see you next week, they're going to throw way more than 50 pitches. They didn't really follow whatever you told them to do. So communication between all the professions is the biggest part of any sort of return to sport with that matter. Completely agree. And, you know, not only that, but you don't necessarily want someone to go out, throw 50 pitches one night and then wait a whole week before your next progression. You know, ideally in a perfect world, you move through things a little bit quicker. Um, And you mentioned there, you know, as a PT, you likely don't have the time to be right next to them saying, you know, how does that feel? How does that feel? I'll even take it a step further and say, look, even if you had the time, do you want to be there saying that? Because I found if you ask someone, how does it feel enough, eventually they're going to start telling you it hurts. (laughs) Because you you sat there and you kept asking the same question over and over and over again. Um, you know, eventually anyone would say, hey, you know, I started to feel something here. Um, so I think there's a certain point of it that comes from the subjective side. You know, we have to be able to listen to our athletes because we can't feel what they feel. Uh, they're going to know their body a lot better than we do, even though we're the movement professional here. Uh, so we have to take what they tell us. Um, but at the same time, we can't necessarily feed into that at all. You know, I don't want to start asking people like, oh, does that hurt? Is that hurting you? Um, because they're, they're going to start to think, well, is he expecting it to? Or what? what is he trying to get at here? <laughs> um, so keeping that piece in mind, but also taking it a step further and matching what they tell you subjectively to what you see objectively. And some of that yeah. comes from the tests, like you mentioned there. Um, and some of that also comes from just watching them, right? You mentioned sometimes you just go and you watch them do their sport. And while you're watching, you might sit there and say, well, he looks just like all the other guys on the field. Or she looks just like all the other girls on the field. You know, I can't tell a difference between where she is now and where she, you know, what wants to be. Um, or you might look at it and you might say, wow, she looks like she's avoiding like everything. Like, you know, she's barely like her softball, like her fastball velocity is down 10 miles an hour. Uh, Her pitches aren't breaking as much. She just looks uncomfortable on the mound. Uh, And that alone could be your assessment of that person is not ready to go back to sport. Um, And I'll even take it a step further and say, what happens when there's a mismatch between those two, right? So what happens when an athlete says, I'm ready, and you see those things? Or what happens when the athlete says, look, I'm not ready, and you look at it and it's like, well, all your objective scores are good and you look the same as every other player on the field. So, you know, what do you do in those hypothetical situations, I guess, when there's a mismatch between the subjective and the objective one way or the other? Yeah. A lot of it is definitely when, uh, when they don't think they're ready, but you truly think they are ready. A lot of that comes back to confidence stuff. I mean, confidence with any sort of return to sport is absolutely huge. Um, I think with with ACLs is always a good example where, you know, really there's not a lot of research that supports the use of like a functional like sport ACL race after return to ACLs. Um, 
and that the the movement that's required to tear an ACL is much less movement than anything that brace is ever going to restrict. And something I always talk with those is, you know, if I have an ACL return to sport and they ask me, do I need this brace when I go? I say, well, do you think you need that brace when you go? And if they say yes, then yes, you do need that brace when you go back. If they say they don't need it, then I'm like, okay, well, let's see how you do without it as long as it goes good. Um, because even if they feel more confident with that brace, research shows that they're going to move better as a result, and that's going to help mitigate the, uh, the risk of injury. Um, it's definitely a lot harder holding back the ones that feel like they're ready to return to sport and they aren't so ready to return to sport. And that's where it's just really trying to find the objective data that's going to show them like, hey, here's the kind of mismatch. Here's what we still need to work on. But you also need to make sure like you, you don't just take everything away, like you give them some things, you know, say it's a pitcher that's that plays in the field, too. And it's just pitching that's still bringing on their pain, like say, OK, hey, at least we can go back to like playing first base or something like that. We're not going to have to throw quite as much. We can still get out there and hit. We just need to hold back on pitching just a little bit longer. Um, if you take everything away from them, chances are that you're not going to get the results you want and they're going to just get frustrated, and end up ditching and doing whatever they want. Versus if you if you're selective of what you're giving back to them and what you're taking away, they're willing to work with you a lot more. Yeah. And I mean, mentally, if you can give them something, it's going to go a lot better for them just from a mental standpoint, because not playing your sport really sucks, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, you know, if you want to do something and you normally have control over that and then all of a sudden you're being told by multiple people, look, it's not time yet. You're not ready yet. Like that really messes with you mentally. Um, and I'll take it a step further again here. Um, you know, ultimately, there's not like a one test or one magic thing that we can look at here that determines if someone's ready or not. You know, again, you mentioned a variety of great tests that have so much data and research behind them, like the Y balance test. And I don't care if we're referring to that for lower quarter or upper quarter. Do it with, you know, your baseball, softball athletes is going to give you some valuable info. But like the Y balance test alone is not a green light to clear someone to go back. Um, ultimately, it becomes like a culmination of everything. And, um, you know, I've had it before where you get one or two athletes that you know, regardless of how good their testing is, subjectively, they're still not ready. And mm -hmm. then it becomes a matter of is there something deeper going on here? Um, yeah. And, you know, I haven't seen this specific case myself, uh, but a PT that I worked with uh, very closely did um, where an athlete, regardless of how good they were in PT, was never ready to go back to sport. And it turned out that athlete didn't want to play that <laughs> sport. Um, and they were just kind of like, well, here's an opportunity to avoid it a little bit longer. Um, so, you know, it becomes difficult to have those kind of conversations. Sometimes they're necessary, especially in the high school uh, age group, at least from my own experience there is kind of get to the deeper meaning of things because sometimes when things don't add up, there's more to it than just a, you know, they're just, you know, they're not confident. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I know we've mentioned it a couple of times throughout this podcast already, but that's, I think that's just the benefit of somebody like the setting that I'm working in where I constantly see the pitching coach. I constantly see the hitting coach. So it's not a, Hey, look, your movements look good. Now go try the sport. And let me know how it feels. It can be, Hey, your movement feels good go pitch with Crystal tomorrow. And then I can talk to Crystal and let her, let her talk to me about what she was seeing with your pitching in a very closed environment. So then when you go to the open environment, you, you already know kind of what it looked like when the variables were controlled. Same thing with hitting. You can go talk to the hitting coach and be like, Hey, 
they're cleared from a movement standpoint. How do they look when they're hitting? And he can say, you know, he's still, he's still not just, he's still not comfortable putting as much force into his swing as we can. And then that'll tell me, Hey, maybe we need to work on a little bit more med ball force production, power production and stuff like that before we really put it back out on the field. Yeah, completely agree. And, you know, that's certainly been a recurring theme here is the importance of collaborating with other individuals on someone's care. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, when as we start to wrap this up here, were there any other points that we made or anything else that you think we really need to emphasize for people here before we kind of close out? I think we kind of hit on most of it. <laughs> most, of, most of anything I wanted to talk about, I mean, I'd say my biggest takeaways are definitely the making sure you have a good warm up in place. Um, that's always going to be one of the biggest things with these pitchers because I don't think that gets stressed enough with their, whether it be travel teams with their high school teams, um, having some sort of individualized warm up that meets their specific movements, um, and then having a good recovery plan, making sure that after pitching, they are doing something that's already working towards the next time that they step into the circle um, so that what you're working on in rehab, if you can eliminate as many factors outside of just the movement in the clinic, um, it's going to make your success in the clinic go a lot further. I completely agree with you. And I can't emphasize that point on the warm up enough and taking it a step further, applying it to other sports, like individualize your warm ups based on the demands of the sports and the athletes that you're working with. You know, not every soccer player is going to get the same warm up as your field hockey players, as your lacrosse players. Like, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach to these things, uh, as we've mentioned. So I love that point to kind of close us out here, Jake. Uh, where can people find you at online? Are you on Instagram or Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, I have Instagram and Twitter. Both are at the Baseball DPT. Um, feel free to give me a follow on either of those. I'm a lot more active on Instagram than I am on Twitter, but I like to post a lot of different exercise ideas um different things with both I, I kind of target more towards baseball and softball even though it's just the baseball dpt that was a a little uh bad marketing there but i couldn't <laughs> find anything that fit both baseball and softball together so uh but yeah feel free to give me a follow on instagram and twitter yeah for sure we'll link to all of that below in the uh you know show notes there so if you didn't quite catch that you can just click there jake really appreciate your time thanks man absolutely i appreciate everything you're uh, you're doing in the community uh, I was glad to be on here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.